out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the drummer with the polecats. It is going to be the one and only John Buck, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. The band, which features on vocals, Tim Polcat, also Boz Bora, guitarist and vocalist, and um, I do believe Phil Bloomberg, but I'm not sure that's still the lineup. But anyway, we'll find out more about that in the interview. This is it with John. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years of his musical world and the Polcats. Take notes. Anyway, John, it's over to you. I'm very much the same as you. I'm a massive Slade fan. My first first loving music, Slade, without a doubt. I, you know, I think the first record I remember getting was in about '71. Was "Cause I Love You." Yes. Uh, it heard that. Uh, obviously, I, you know, like you, I was probably only seven at the time or something. And uh, yeah, so always a massive Slade fan, and and Don Powell massive influence on, on me as a drummer. Mm. Uh, I, I've, got, I've got an older brother. Um, who's about ten years older than me, so he was he was into the Beatles and the Stones, so he he got me into all that sort of music. And while I was picking up on the glam, and then being that little bit older, he picked up on the punk thing a bit earlier than I did. And then yeah, you know, sort of he he, he dragged me into that as well. And then uh, yes. and then Rockabilly came along. So you were quite lucky because I had a brother who was seven years old and he was into prog rock. So I kind of worshipped him at the time and thought he was cool, which I, you know, I'm sure he was. But I, so I got into Yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, and um, <laughs> but with Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. So that was that was a bit unfortunate. Was, and the not so- a bad mix, yeah. Not and and the solo work of Rick Wakeman, I also seem to remember. But he did have two albums I loved, which was Sergeant Pepper and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And I, I sort of looking back, realised this was the kind of seventy three seventy four, you know, and the beat. I didn't realise. That the Beatles had only just broken up, really, hadn't they? But it felt like a complete. That's right. Time. Yeah, I oh, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, gone and gone and done. Yeah. They were your last we, years. We were too young to realise at the time. I guess. Yes, and did you come from a musical family at all? Were they? Was there anybody who played music in your family? Or uh, only my brother. My brother was a guitarist, and he was in actually in a in a prog rock type band. Because uh, so he was into all that that kind of stuff. Yes, and you know all, all that sort of thing. But but also he he liked. You know, stuff like status quo, Doctor Feelgood, you know, yes. all that sort of thing. So, so I I picked up on all his his record collection, basically. You know, every time he bought a decent album, whether it was, you know, Stupidity by Status Quo or or, or by Doctor Feelgood, or you know, something by Status Quo, I, I'd listen to it. And uh, you know, he he take me to see, he took me to see my first gig, which was uh, Slade at the Rainbow in about seventy oh. eight, I think. Um, so that was uh, that, was that was nice. Was mine was mine was nine below zero. Mm. My first gig, which was oh wow, just seemed wow. Very, where was that? Seemed, where that was, was that? at the Ipswich Odeon. So um, and they were quite a big band at the time. They they were doing yeah. songs like um, I think Tree to Right and um, oh, that oh, was, was fantastic. Though nine below zero are great. I used to go and see them in London a bit. Yeah. They were great. They yeah, were. they were. They were the sort of, you know, you were just, I can see why, you know, that after that first album, they did struggle. and uh, But they're still going, which is brilliant. It's they funny. are still going, yeah. yeah. They, and it's great that you mentioned Status Quo, because they were the one band that you couldn't ever say anything bad about where I grew up, because you would have got beaten up. The Quo fan <laughs> was very committed. It was very tribal. You know, you couldn't admit really? that you liked, you couldn't admit to liking mod bands or... Yeah, anything no. like two tone. It no. was just like it was. It was leather. It was bikers. It was just it was you know denim jackets and shirts and because most people left things. school at sixteen. This was nineteen eighty, and just went yeah. to either the chicken factory or the farm world or some yeah. sort of. Yeah, it was all pretty grim, really. You know, I don't think we had careers teachers. They just went, well, just go in the factory and yeah, you know, pl- pluck feathers. I think was. The oh, that's, that's, I, I I don't I. Can't off the top of my head remember anyone from my year at school that went to university, for example. No. Everyone went straight into apprenticeships, which was which would have been the thing at the time. Yeah. Yes. So with your interest in drumming, was it, you know, Don that sort of because we were always a little bit worried, weren't we? Because he had the accident and realized he didn't have any more memory. He it all gone, Com- hadn't he? 
can remember that's right yeah I, I think it was that I mean I, I'll be honest I, I had a some guitar lessons obviously because I wanted to be like my brother I wanted to be able to play, play guitar well, that's, that's his, his strap on the wall there I've, uh, I've borrowed many years ago and haven't given back um, so yeah I, I took some guitar lessons didn't really get on with it so he said to me oh, the drummer in my band he's selling his drums why don't you get them he, he, he convinced my dad to buy them for me uh, which I think he regretted as soon as I started playing it mm. um, and he, and, he, and, and, he started, and it was oh, I've never had a drum lesson in my life but it was just one of those things I, I managed to pick up on uh, you know used to play along to records in my bedroom and that, and that sort of thing um, but yeah listening to Don Powell the big figure John Coggan from Quo and then of course you know Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols uh, and, and that sort of thing um, that was but we did have we did have Cozy Pearl didn't we doing his solo record Gold oh yeah Devil. which were great that's right great it's a classic great yeah you don't get that anymore do you you don't that's get you don't get drunk. <laughs> Drum records are just a basically a drum solo. A drum, yes, yeah, so drum yeah. solos were very big, and then you know, obviously, a bass solo, and a, everyone had yeah. their solos. So, when you got sixteen, then did you also leave and go and get an apprenticeship and go into the world of employment? Because it was kind of a weird time. Because seventy nine, you know, the seventies were quite quite nice, but they were quite grim as well, weren't they? I remember sort of. Oh like, God, yeah, cuts, yeah. You know, there was a lot of. There was always a strike. There was always kind of a, a government being chucked out and a new one brought in. But seventy nine, Thatcher gets in. Then we have the kind of the great kind of, well, not the great, but we had the Falkland crisis and war, and then yeah. we had the miners' strike, and then we had, you know, Greenham Common. You know, we just all thought we were going to be nuked out of our nuked. beds. Yeah. But that, yeah. that was that. And I, I'd sort of got. During that period, I suppose the 80s, that's when I had sort of rejected, not rejected, but gave up the prog rock world for a bit more John Peel and things like, I don't know, that that world of John Peel and the NME. Yeah. So what happened to you when you got to that late <clears throat> teen period? Well, I I, uh, I mean, I'd already started playing in bands by that time. I was in a, in a, in a punk band called The Dead Twats, which basically did Sex Pistols covers. Um, and, uh, and then I'd... I'd I left school, did a, a year's city and guilds in, in motor vehicle engineering, and then worked as a mechanic in a garage. And I guess I'd been there, you know, I left school. When, when were we left school? 1980, I suppose. 1980. Did a, yeah, did a year year in year in uh, in college, then went to work for probably about 18 months. And in in that period, I played in various bands. I'd sort of moved away from the sort of school band. I joined a band called the Cannibals. Uh, they've been around for years. Um, there's a, a guy called Mike Spencer. God, I've interviewed uh, Mike. You know from tra Trash Cam Radio. I've done a member. You know yeah, from yes. Character Mike Spencer. So he. he oh, I'll rewind a little bit. Me and my brother used to go and watch a band called The Inmates. Remember they had a single out the walk uh, in the early eighties. So we used to go and see them. He, friends of his, Mike Spencer. One day we were chatting. I told him I played drums. I was about 15 at the time. He goes, yeah, Johnny, come and play drums with us. So I used to travel on the tube all the way down to Brixton, where he lived. He picked me up from Brixton Station, and he lived about five minutes' drive. And we'd rehearse, and we started playing. So that was my first introduction to a proper band, playing in pubs. And that's sort of thing. I was about 15, 16. So from there, sort of the rockabilly thing started coming in, and I got involved with a couple of um, rockabilly bands. I ended up in a band called the Poor Boys, um, which I was at the time I was I was living in Potter's Bar, Hertfordshire, you know, around the top of the M25. Um, so it was a, a bunch of local guys, um, and we got got together this band called the Poor Boys, and uh, we we did a single on Ace Records, an EP, um, and it just so happened that the singer was sharing a flat with Phil from the Polecats at the time. And we did a rehearsal round there once, met Phil, and then within a few months I started playing with the Polecats. It was simple as that, really. God, that is a good that is a good one. There there are some quite amazing characters you managed to meet at a very early age. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. And at that stage, had the stray cats hit they had hit the sort of charts, hadn't they? They had. They had, because they'd they'd hit around the same time because they they had runaway boys came out that must have been 81 yes and the polecats john and only dancing 
also came out in 81 and, and the album came out in 81. So it was all around that that similar sort of time, that maybe from 80 through to the end of 81, all that thing was... It's, you look back and you think it must have been a longer period, but it wasn't really. It was quite a short, short amount of time. I just and seem to remember it, there was Joan Jett, wasn't there? Um, I love rock and roll, and Stray Cat yeah. Strut was kind of kind of heavy rotation, wasn't it? It was that yeah, period where yeah. you had some classic rock, not classic classic, but just amazing rock. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. Yeah. Some I mean, great songs. Stray Cat's a great man. Yeah, great great band to go and go and yes. see. And uh, so it was. But they, yeah, I think they. They must have only, only, only just been around in in that, that early eighties coming into it. Because by the time I I joined the Polecats and was up at eighty two, um, they were still playing at places like Dingwalls in Camden. Because mm-hmm. um, I remember going to see them, um, and I was in the Polecats at the time. So so yeah, so so they hadn't got massive massive by that point. But then you had the top of you were you on the top of the pops performance? No, because that was 81, it was just before I, I joined. I, I came in when uh Maker Circuit was released. The first thing I did was do the video for Maker Circuit. Right. There you go. So what was that because the band had been going since 77, hadn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was kind of like Silver Jubilee punk period, really. Had um was there just a sort of a change in drummer at that stage? Well, I mean, from 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 '77 when they formed, there was a a, a different guy, a guy called Chris Hawks, um, who was playing drums, and I mean, he was literally a stand-up one one drum, one cymbal guy. Um, then when they started to to get a bit of a break, I think Neil Neil Rooney came in, probably '78 '79. So he he did the you know the groundwork with them, to, you know, before they got the deal, and they were out playing gigs. And then they they did the recording. Yeah, I, I just think there was a bit. They just wanted to go in a bit of a change of of direction, move move, move a bit more. Um, I think they wanted to get a, a bit heavier, to be honest. Um, yes. So so uh, yeah, they obviously looked looked for a change. So because at that stage there was sort of the rise of the psychobilly scene had started, hadn't it, with the Guana yeah. Bats and King yeah. and people like that. So was yeah. the because. Because me, for me, the 80s was just a fantastic period of music because I was at that age, you know. You can only be that age once where music means so much. You know, I remember Lemmy. I know, people Moti- always joke about it and, 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 and have, a, have a pop at the 80s, but I thought it was quite good. Oh, God, the 80s. I just, you know, actually having started this, doing these kind of show, this show and doing these interviews, I didn't realise, because I should have done, being the, <laughs> I didn't realise there were quite so many different scenes and so many different bands. You know, it was like, yeah. God, how many bands were there? You know, it's just unbelievable. So... You know, I always had that kind of, oh, there's punk, there's post-punk, there's a bit of new romantic, there's indie pop, there's that Trevor Horn production sound, which was quite irritating. And then you got yeah, to the yeah. end, you had this sort of dance scene and then a bit of grunge, I suppose. But then there was all these kind of like, there was this, you know, new Paisley, the psychobilly scene. There was, you know, I mean, it was just, and the goth scene was huge. And, and there I was know, a- yeah, incredible, incredible, you know. And, and of course, all, all during that time as well, you had this sort of... Um, sort of uh, rock stuff coming from California, that real sort of, I guess, bouncing off the glam. They were all a bit glam, weren't they? You know, people like Motley Crue coming through and that. that oh, God, you had you know, LA hair metal. Yeah, I mean, that that's was it, extraordinary. hair metal. That's, yeah, yeah that was... all that sort of thing as well, which was, you know. And then you had bands like, you know, I don't know, Dream Parade, Green on Red, the Bangles, you know, all that kind of band. You know, they all had that yeah. thing with the birds that was coming in and a bit sort of. Yeah. A bit more acoustic, and I suppose REM was a bit more acoustic rock at the beginning, not rock, but you know, they were kind of indie, I suppose. But there was a sort of an earthiness to them, which and then you had that, as I mentioned, the Trevor Horn production of yeah, yeah. which I didn't like at all. You know, the no, the, no, no, I never, never got that sound. So, how did your how did the polecats navigate then the 80s? Because obviously, the stray cats had hit this kind of you know, top. 10 everyone knew them, everyone loved them. So, did there yeah. was there a feeling this was going to be your moment? I think so, to be honest. I think you think we thought, well, this this could be a big, big thing. They came over, they looked great, they played really good. Um, they were they were great to go and watch their records are great. Um and I think, yeah, I think we all thought, well, well this is this is this could be our, our chance. Obviously, there was two or three singles that got you know, podcast singles got in the charts and that. Um but then yeah, it all seemed to it all seemed to fizzle out. I think the stray cats. The Stray Cats, by about their third album, 
it had all gone a bit, you know, just a bit flat, I think. And, yes. and the whole scene was changing so quickly. It was, it was almost like a sped-up version of Punk. I mean, Punk was only really around for about three years. In reality, like the Sex Pistols' lifespan was was not much more than that. And <laughs> and and it was, it, you know, what I mean, it was it was like there and it was gone, and then it was something else. And I think it was like that with Rockabilly. It sort of it started edging in in 1980. By about 83, it started taking a bit of a bit of a dip down, and um, you know, it was, which was a bit of a shame, really. So I think we. We played, we played. I won't say regularly, but we 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 played and did shows till about eighty four, eighty five, I think. Yes. And then, and then, uh, Buzz was doing other things. Phil was doing producing, people doing other things. Um, by that time, Tim was almost leaving to go and live in America. Uh, he married a, a American girl, so he, he he went to California, and so it was just sort of sort of fell apart a little bit really but then until um then then in the sort of later 80s it all sort of had a bit of a resurgence you know there were more festivals coming along you know and uh, and we got back together and, and i don't think we've apart from the last two years i don't think we've stopped playing since to be honest. Yes, well, I think it is quite. It's quite interesting having done this show for quite a bit of time. Most bands do have a bit of a five-year narrative. Um, you know, they get together. That that you know, twelve-month honeymoon period is often quite nice. You know, everyone's a bit yeah, enthusiastic. Yeah. Mostly learning what to do and how to make a sound. And there was also the gatekeepers. You know, we had the, you know the eighties and nineties. A bit had you know you had people. You know, you had a lot of. Um, I suppose we had three weekly music papers, which was quite handy, and possibly Record Mirror. And then yeah. you, know, you had John Peel, then you had people like Kid Jensen and Janice Long, who were, you know, would give you, you know, quite a bit of exposure on a sort of major, you know, radio station. And every city and town in, in the UK, which is a tiny little place, had a, a, a venue where, you know, like an alternative yeah. kind of alternative venue, you know, so people could get in a transit van, at least feel like they were doing a bit of a, some gig. That's right. Yeah. So it, yeah. it kept people going. But then, you know, you had the John Peel session in some, you know, not every band, but a lot of bands have the John Peel session. And then the first album, things are going well. Second album, a bit tricky. Third album, really, everyone's a bit tired. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I so think I, yeah I, you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. And then, and, and the other thing, I always remember Lemmy talking about, him and I love Lemmy and David Bowie. They were born at the same year, and they always said their, their musical influence was always, you know, Little Richard, you know, then yeah. it was kind of Elvis, then it was Eddie Cochran and all those. And, you know, as, as Lemmy said, you know, you can only be 18, 16, you know, at that one time, and that's the music that's going to have that massive influence, isn't it? Yeah. And I think with any band, you know, the next generation, I think every five years there's a next generation come along and they kind of want their sound. And it's it's almost for a musician, it's like, oh my God, what's what's now yeah. trendy? And I think by the late 80s, you know, all those indie bands that I used to love, they all sort of gave up because it was like, well, no one wants to hear us because they want to hear the Stone Roses or the Happy Mondays or you know all, all that stuff had started coming on isn't it yeah. yeah yes so you kind of go mm, sorry guys you know but not many people everyone that who were your fans are all suddenly having to get mortgages or own their own yeah. place or renting <laughs> and, and, they've, yeah. and they've got other commitments they can't kind That's of just right. yeah. base their life around seeing the gig so what was it like then did did the band completely finish then mm. in the sort of mid 80s for a bit yeah I, yeah i guess i get i mean we're all still in touch you know Although Tim was in the States, I, you know, I've been visited him a couple of times and, and I was still in touch with Boz. Boz and I still played in various bands together. Um, I, you know, still in touch with Phil. So it wasn't like we'd fallen out or or anything like that. It was just at, at, at that point we had other bits and pieces to do. We were, you know, we were getting on with life, but we were still playing music. Um, and I think it must have been about 80, 88, we got offered a... a headline a big festival in in holland so we literally turned up at the uh harridge to get the uh the ferry over to the hook of holland hook of um, holland on Zeebrugger. oh that's right <laughs> yeah that's it yeah get on the old ferry and um uh and, and that was i think first time we'd all been together for for probably about three years so yes and was this where you did the next album as a band? Is this where you did Won't Die on Vinyl? That's right. Well, that's, that's right. So after after we did that gig, 
a few more, you know, people say, oh, Polkets, you're still around. Great. Let's, you know, started getting us together. The guy from, from Vinyl Japan contacted us, said, will you do an album? So we did that, I think, 89. Nice. Um, and uh, which was great. He then took us to Japan. We and, and Japan was mad because it was it was like it was here in the early 80s. The, the rockabilly thing was massive there. And the people, the people go totally, if they're into it, they're into it. You know, they turned up, they had all the records. They had all the records that any of us had ever made with other bands, um, all, all to get signed. And um, what, they said, one guy turned up with a mini that was painted pink, Polkats logo on it. It was, we thought we were the Beatles. It was incredible. Yes. So, and we did that about, we went, you know, through the end of 80s, where from 90, through to later in the night, we went over about five times. So yeah, uh, well, it's funny because they because Final Japan sort of signed a lot of these kind of indie bands that I like, you know, much much more jingly jangly and some of them kind of shoegazing, but they seem to really pick up. So there's these artists who'd play in front of twenty to fifty people in the UK at some art centre on a Tuesday yeah. night. They go to Japan, they get the offer to make an album. They go, oh, thanks very much. Yeah, well, yeah. So much money in our life. Yeah. But you want to come yeah. to Japan? It's like, well, might as well. And it's like, my well, God, yeah. we, we are superstars here. And it was a bit... I know. I know. That's how they treat you there. That, that's exactly how you feel. That's exactly... It was incredible. So, that was yeah, great. we didn't mind going there at all. Not yes. the sort of place you'd go to normally. So well, no, I don't I don't think I'd ever been to Japan. I've never been. But um yes. Yeah. So then then does Boz then leave again? Is this kind of once well, that's done? I mean, even even then, when he when he started playing with, with Morrissey, I don't think he ever left as such. He just wasn't around as much. So when he was here, if the Polkets had gigs, because with Tim living in the States since the late 80s, we, we've had to manage how we do gigs. So we get him over for like a month at a time and we'll fit yes. as many gigs as we can. And we might do that once or twice a year. So if that fitted around Boz being free, then Boz did the gigs. But if not, we, we started developing a, a, a sort of substitute bench of, uh, of, of, of you know, good guitarists who could, um, who could fill in for him. So, um, uh, it, you know, it was it, it weren't ideal at first, but but all three of the guys that we've used over the years are all fantastic guitarists, and uh, uh, you know, always always do a good job. So, is it the case then the Polkats is kind of you know really a side hustle that you you just kept going for the love of yeah, you know, the yeah. band? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly that because we we enjoy it. We all still enjoy playing. I I play in a couple of other bands. Phil plays in. Several different bands, uh, including with Mark Armand. He's 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 doing a lot of shows with Mark Armand at the moment. Yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, and Tim Tim obviously um, started doing some solo shows in the states. Um, we go over there and play with him in the states. The Polkets, you know, number of times he started doing uh, got the band Thirteen Cats together with Smutty and Slim Jim and Danny yes. Harvey. Danny Harvey, Le- so, Jerry Lee yeah. Lewis's kind. Is he married to Jer- Jerry Lee Lewis's relative? Uh, granddaughter. Granddaughter. I yeah. know. Oh, he's yeah. such a cool Jerry dude. Lewis's granddaughter, which is quite. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about Jerry Lee Lewis. So, um, the first, uh, second ever gig I did, the first ever gig I did with the Polecats was at um, Nottingham University. Second ever gig I did was supporting Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, at the Theatre Royal in Plymouth. And um, the set, that was the first night of a tour we were doing with him. Second night was at Hammersmith Oak. So um, we, we, he's, we, we, we'd got friendly with his band and they, we'd, we'd seen him, hadn't met him. Um, but second night in, in Hammersmith Odium, we'd done our set. We were just coming out of our dressing room. They were all coming out of their dressing room and um, we were saying, yeah, wishing them good luck, have a good show, guys. And they all left. And he's sit, still sitting in the dressing room. And I'm with Tim. And we thought, ah, oh, it's Jerry Lee Lewis. We can't, we can't miss this out. And we read and said, oh, you know, Jerry, you know, nice to see you. And he goes, you boys are in the wrong dressing room now. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mr. Lewis. Thank you, sir. We'll be off then. <laughs> So that's my claim to fame. I got told the fuck off by Jerry Lee. Oh, that's a classic, isn't it? I mean, yeah. God, you have to have you have to have such an attitude, don't you? You know. Yeah. 
Oh, oh. mate, shot. Sorry. <laughs> Blimey, yes, you wouldn't forget that one in a hurry, would you? God, God that's a good, I didn't see that one coming. Yes, and neither did <laughs> you, did you? No, because actually, I suppose, yes, Danny and um, Lemmy got together with Slim, didn't they, to do the Headcats? The Headcats, that's right, yeah, yeah. Which was a really good sort of little... Which was great, yeah, great combination. Fantastic, Fantastic. I know. So, um, <laughs> yes, so then with, with sort of keeping the band going, is it, again, a case, because you've got a lot of albums. Are these all kind of live dates and sort of live kind of concerts that you put together? Uh, yeah, yeah. the minute we've, we've got uh, a bunch of gigs starting on Friday. Uh, Tim Tim flies in from the States um, tomorrow. Um, and, uh, yeah, we start on Friday. We've got a gig in Germany Friday night. Um, then next week there's a there's a big, I guess it's a psychobilly festival in uh, Pineda in Spain, right. near Barcelona, right on the coast. Fantastic. It's been going for, blimey. 10 or more years now so it's, and, and uh, it is primarily a psychobilly festival but we get booked on it every now and again I think they like you know like to mix it up I think they got Restless are playing the Guana Bats are playing um, over, the, over the weekend and we're uh, we're playing on the next Sunday night and then um, we've got I think about five gigs in the UK uh, and then one in Italy so so that that will take us over about a sort of five week period and then Tim will Tim will go back, and then I think he's coming back in. Um, I think we've got some more in September lined up. So my God, you do really well keeping it all together, don't you? Well, yeah, it's it's it's, it's a bit especially with Boz now spends a lot of his time in um, Portugal. He's got a, a house up in the mountains in Portugal. He he, he bought with his ill-gotten gains from Morrissey, um, and he's got a recording studio there. So he he seems to spend a lot of his time there now. Um, and so so it's the logistics of getting him here, getting Tim here, making sure Phil's available, making sure I'm, I'm about and, and getting it all together. So this will be the first, this, in fact, Friday will be the first time we've all been together since February 2020, when was the last gig we did, about three weeks before lockdown, the original lockdown. Damn fucking lockdown. Yeah, so is it the case, I remember doing an interview with old Woody Woodmansey from um, David Bowie's Spiders from Mars, and because he's got a gig, you know, wow. he's got a, a thing with Holy Holy, you know, with Tony Visconti. So when they yeah. get their little tour together, um, they just literally, you know, will rehearse for a few days before <clears> the first gig. And it's like, well, we we know our bits, you know, we can practice those on our own. And then we just have a couple of nights together or a few days together, bash it out, and then we're ready to go. Is it the same with the Polecats? Do you manage to I, sort of do it that quickly? I, I think on, on this on this occasion, uh, the, the the rehearsal is going to be the first gig. Um, I've, I've I've got actually I've got the sets. I've printed the sets out yesterday, and I've uh, um, I've, I've sort of kept kept all the, the the sort of songs that that we can sort of play with our eyes shut on there just for the first first one. And we've, yes. we've we've have recorded some new stuff um, which we're just finishing off, and, and we were hoping to get out as an EP for for these gigs, but it just hasn't come together in time. So. Um, so we might try and slip a few more ones for these new songs in as as the, you know, the the gigs go on. We can you know get together, but um, yeah, just because it would have meant getting Tim in a a few days earlier and getting Boz in a few days earlier, just just logistically is a bit too much. So when was the last time <clears throat> the band were in a, in a studio and recording new material? We went into Bozzy's studio in Portugal in uh, November twenty nineteen. Uh, and the plan was to get something out in 2020. Um, so we, we were doing some gigs in, in November and we had a week between shows. So we said, well, look, we're all here. Why don't we go to, to Bozzy's studio? We get a week in Portugal, which is going to be a bit warmer than it was in London. Yeah. Um, we can we can do some songs, which we did. We went and, we went and I think we put down about five songs. Um, and then, of course, COVID hit and that was all kiboshed. Um, but... Phil and Tim were sort of eventually uh, later in in 2020 got a bit proactive and got some more songs together. And was, they both got recording facilities themselves at home, so they were pinging uh, pinging songs and ideas backwards and forwards. And we eventually got enough for with a bit of what we did at Bozzy's and a bit of um, a bit of new stuff. Um, and about three months ago, Phil and I went into a studio in London and I put all the drums down. So we've got four tracks 
ready to go. We sent them to Boz in Portugal. He's done the guitar on it. So, um, yeah, we're hoping some point this year we'll have, uh, have this EP out. Yes. Has music become one of the most important parts of your old life as, as you sort of, as we all get a bit older? Has it sort of taken on more, more significance? Yeah, yeah, you know what? Um, in, in, I, I mean, I've, I've had a day job ever since, um, well, mid-80s. Since when the, the podcast sort of quieted down a bit, I've got mm. a day job and I've had one ever since. So, I've always done it as a, a side thing anyway, if you like, you know, yes. and because, because I love it and, and, and we have a good time. Um, but yeah, I think it has, it's become, and I think what brought that on was, was lockdown, to be honest. Um, I massively miss being out of play yes. because you know, being a drummer, it's very difficult to get your drums out. If you like your neighbors, you know, and, 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 and have a bash. So, um, I, I sort of went against all all, all my uh, instincts and and um, uh, I've got an electric kit. Um, and um, in fact, actually, I'll be honest, it was my, my wife and daughter bought, bought it for me for a Father's Day present because they were fed up with me moping around. Miserable, <laughs> I, I couldn't play drums. And it, and it was it was the best thing I've done. So so but played that. I was able to practice the new polecat stuff. So it worked for that. Yes. And yeah, yeah, playing now. I'm, I play in another band that do um, sort of punk and new wave covers. And we just play in pubs. And I do that, let's say, every other weekend. And and so I, I don't think I've played as much, since, you know, at all, you know, so regularly than I have in the last year. Since we all got let out of lockdown and could get out and do do things and places started having bands on, yes. I've just fitted as much in as I can and, and just really really enjoying it really enjoy doing it you know yeah. I suppose, you know you think you you when you, you you look at it different when you're getting older you think well all right we're not all paul mccartney you know or, or mick jagger who can do it into our 70s and 80s and maybe you've only got a limited time left left to be able to do it at a decent level um so i think you just got to fit as much in as you can yeah well, I, I, I suppose what what i've noticed in my 50s is that you know one sort of took a lot of things for granted, especially health. And then suddenly, you know, like your own health starts having some interesting issues and then other friends have an issue. In, in everybody I know, yes. you know, we now yes. have a conversation about oh, some sort of ailment or hospital appointment that we've got or some sort of operation that's <laughs> happening, which is like, Christ, this is interesting. They think, oh, I think this is going to be what it's like. So having moments where you think, actually, I feel good. I'm just going to go and do this and I'm going to do that because I can't take that's it for right, granted. Yes. And then yes. seeing Paul McCartney or seeing the Ronan Stones as we do still touring you're thinking my god and Iggy Pop you do feel a little bit more like you've got to just take the moment haven't you You can't be cool and especially with lockdown I think you know a lot of bands are like I'm not sure I'm bothered and it's like well don't worry because there's no gigs or no nothing I think everyone's gone I'm going to make up with my team and my my mates and the other members of the band because actually I'm not going to get a new band and these guys, you know, women, you know, we do know each other and we can do it. We just yeah, need to put yeah. a few of those trivial little issues to one side, which let's face it, they pretty are, you know. They're normally very trivial. Very trivial. Extremely trivial. And perhaps if we all read the room better and don't say so many things, we probably get on even better. So it, it's like, yeah. let's just enjoy the music. I just wondered if you, you know, with you and the band, you're starting to sort of think, God, actually, we're quite a nice gang and we've got a nice little thing going here. And it keeps us amused on our sort of weekends yeah. and evenings to play um, music. Exactly, yeah, exactly that. And we, you know, we, I think we enjoy getting together and seeing each other because, but, you know, Phil, Phil and um, Boz and, and Tim have known each other since, since they were, you know, 14, 13, 14, 15 sort of age, you know, school together and, and you know, and the scouts together and that sort of thing. So, so they've known each other a, 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 an awful long time. So, you know, seeing each other now for, for a month every year, every 12 months is, is great. And are you finding your, you know, old fans are coming out of the woodwork? <clears throat> Did you find that there's new kind of fans coming? Because I noticed your oh, Spotify yeah. playlist or monthly listening is, is really high. And it's like, wow, yeah. that's, that's really <laughs> neat. So I just wondered if there's a whole new wave of band um, audience who are sort of kids who just think, actually, I really like the rockabilly, psychobilly scene that you know, happened in the 80s. 
totally, totally. You go, you go to, um, you know, some of the festivals. We, we, you know, like, like the Pinedo one in Spain, or we do one in uh, called uh, the Bedlam Breakout in Northampton, which again is is kind of a psychobilly thing. But they, they, you know, get us on because we're well, we're not street rockabilly, are we? We're a bit more sort of funky, and we put a bit of you know effort into it. Um, and and it, yeah, it is. Yes, there's still all the old faces who are blokes of our age, but. Um, and new bands as well. There's tons of good new bands of, of young kids playing playing rockabilly, which is great. It's yes, because I do sort of, I've sort of realised with doing this, there's kind of often a, a only a 25 to 30 year sort of period where I think when something happens, we all take it for granted and then we get on with the rest of our lives and do what, what we need to do. And then sometimes look back, not necessarily with rose-tinted sunglasses, but you think, actually, there's some lot more better it's a better scene sometimes and I took it, you know, remember it, you know, and it's it's quite interesting. And there's a lot more other bands that I've discovered from the 80s that I missed the first time, which I bet I realized, yeah, yeah there's a lot of quite yeah. interesting things that happened during that period. And then and yeah. every decade and every generation will experience that. I just you know realized that that was my period, was the 80s mostly. And um, yeah, there was just a lot of different scenes, a lot of different, yeah bands that used to happen and you know and I noticed in lockdown everybody was writing their book and there's been little films coming out from different about different bands like the wedding present and the nightingales and the slips and you know all these kind of bands yeah. that I'm sure at the time we just went well whatever who cares about the wedding present and the nightingales and it's like <laughs> no actually they're really good so I just wondered if they you've kind of found that the you know the polecats and the stingrays and all these bands are, are sort of getting much more kind of critically acclaimed and <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean the people, the people that come up to us and say, "Well, we we started a band because we listened to the Bulkheads," and you think, "Well, that's that's great." We're, we're not the Rolling Stones or Beatles, but it it it's nice to have somebody say that we started playing because we we listened to your music. I mean, okay, great, job done, really, job done. Yes. You know, and have you found that with the band? everyone's playing has changed or improved greatly from those early years because you've all done so many different things haven't you so from those early late 70s to early 80s you know everyone had a certain amount of you know like skill but then you've all done tons of things I just wondered how everyone's changed musically I'd say yeah you're you're right I mean obviously um Bosworth a great guitarist but playing with Morrissey for 20 years doing 40 shows a year um yeah of course he's, he's playing has, has got has got you know massively massively better i mean he's always been great but he's you know he's really great um phil as well phil phil's he's so diverse as a, as a bass player um he, he uh he's classically trained uh, to a degree anyway but he's played in he's done so many different things he, he's done uh, he was involved in a show, uh, Walk Right Back, which was a stage show about the Everly Brothers. Oh so yes, he, he he played, you know, in the in the in the band in that, and he's he's you know playing with people like Mark Armand. He plays electric bass with with Mark, you know, does so a totally different thing. But yeah, because he reads music and he he he, he writes parts and stuff, and he, yeah, so he's um, he's playing. He's uh, he's very good. He, he's in my and I've played with several different double bass players but in my opinion he's he's one of the, the finest double yes. bass players yeah. yes it's interesting do you get smith's fans pe- appearing at the gigs as well yeah so yeah 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 loads smith's and morrissey fans and and uh yeah. you'll find there is a bit of a crossover there is a crossover because some of them are kind of rockabilly looking but maybe a lot of the people who got into the morrissey thing the solo stuff early on was when you had Boz, Alan White, um, Gary Day, Gary Day, who were all, all rocking. They were all in rockabilly bands, um, yes. so they all looked rocking. And Moz kind of made himself look a little bit like. So a lot of the people looked like that, even though they might not really know much about rockabilly, or might, they might know about rockabilly from the Polecats and the Stray Cats onwards. They don't know anything from the 50s or anything like that, you know. Yes. So, but they've got that look. But I may yell, God, they turn up. Yeah, they turn up at, at Polecats gigs. Um, and it's great because they turn up whether 
was he there or not? Because they then may think, okay, well, this band, okay, we'll we'll uh, we'll come and see him. Yes, well, absolutely. I mean, that was quite it's quite interesting because I was a massive Smiths fan, and then I didn't sort of pick up on the solo stuff until a bit later, and then I went back and listened and went, oh, this is this is good, you know, especially the early solo stuff. Um, I thought was stunning, but yeah, I, I think you know the, the Smiths consumed me for five years, and then <laughs> it was just it was just all too much, and it was it, you know it was just kind of interesting how you know the different members kind of went in different directions and and must have had to play you know quite a lot of different music really to keep um, yeah. a day yeah. job, which was quite interesting. Yeah. So um, yes, it's interesting that everyone sort of managed to, you know, diversify so much. So if you were able to tell your, or whisper to you, you know, if you spent some time with your 16 year old self starting out, <laughs> what would you kind of want to whisper in their ear when they were, you know, when you just thought, yeah, there is a few bits of quite good advice or wisdom that you've discovered over the decades. I, I, it's, it's uh... I'd say, I'd say, don't be afraid to do anything. If you get an opportunity to do it, do it whether it's a show or play with a band, whether it's not, even if it's out of your comfort zone, if you, even if it's playing something that you're not used to, do it. Don't don't miss out on it. Do it. Yes. Because it, it's an experience and it's education and uh, yeah, it's, it's learning your learning your instrument and uh, uh, yeah, just yeah. Play, play as much as you can. Don't miss out on anything. Do it. Yes, because yeah. I was. I mentioned right at the start. Um, you know, my first single was David Bowie's "Space Oddity," but my first album was "Changes One" that had John Armoni dancing, which always had that really interesting bit of stereo. Um, does that yeah. is that still one of the most popular band, uh, tracks <coughs> you play in the set, or is there other ones now? Number one on the list. First song every night. <laughs> <laughs> First song, yeah. First song. Excellent. Night, yeah. Is that the? Is that? Um, is that just do the? Well, yeah. Which is the one that gets the most kind of response from the audience? Or uh, that that does Rockabilly Guy, I think, which we always leave till the end because that's a bit of a bit of a anthem, I suppose. But make a circuit now. Make a circuit, which you take the double bass out. It's not really a Rockabilly song at all. Mm. But that we we didn't play it for years. Didn't, didn't play the song, I don't think, until into the 90s. We didn't play that live. But actually, that is, it was the big, biggest hit in America. Um, the video for that used to get played on MTV um, throughout the, the, the 80s a lot. It's been on TV shows in America. Um, oh, oh, what was it? What was it called? Um, oh, was there Glory a film? Days. Glory right. Days. It was on. It was on that Wally. You know the film Wally. Yes, and the soundtrack to Joey as well, wasn't there? That's right. Yeah, there was. There was several, several of those sort of films that, that they've used it in the soundtrack for, and a lot of people know know of it, know of the song. Um, but it's not. I mean, it's not really. It's not slightly rockabilly at all, you know. But but we, so we started playing it again, and everybody loves it. Yes, I know when the Rockettes tried to, they got a producer, I think it was Tim Palmer, to try to give them that hit. You know, the hit is quite hard, isn't it? And I think they yeah, did a song yeah. called Make a Move. And it was Make like, that move. Make Make that, that and move, it's like, yeah. it's all right, but it doesn't have that. Mm. Do you find as a musician, you know, that something that makes a song like, wow, that is amazing? Because I don't know if you ever listened to it, but there's that recording of the Trogs in the studio and they're trying to record that, a song, and he keeps, you know, they're really swearing at each other and they they what? kind of keep going on to the drummer about this And he goes, the fucking drummers, I shit them. I can't yeah. play the fucking... And he keeps... And, he, and, the, and the singer keeps saying, sprinkle some fairy dust on the thing i mean do you ever That's sort right. of in, in a Brilliant. studio or yeah. in the rehearsal when you're thinking let's try and write this song do you get that kind of like god what what is it that makes a song amazing you know <clears> how <throat> frustrating is it yeah, yeah i suppose i suppose it can be if it's not if it's not going going quite right but um we're, we're lucky that with with um phil and and tim they've both got when they get a song together especially on these these latest songs when they when they they've got an idea in their head of how it sounds and how they want it to sound. Yeah. And for the most part, when they're thinking of the drums, they're thinking of me playing them. So they'll think, well, okay, John would probably do this. And and because we've been playing together for 40 years, we, we kind of know know what each other would do. So it works out well, works out quite well. And I think these latest recordings we did, um, 
because it wasn't like a normal session that's all going in together because there was a backing track with a drum machine playing on it. And, and I, w- I went in and played them. And what they put down as the drum track in their heads was very similar to what I, I played because they knew that that's how I would play it. Yes. So it was, that was quite interesting. So uh, there wasn't so much of a, it wasn't so much of a, you know, me going in and, doing something different because they they already knew the, the sort of the style you know because i've done two i've done a lot of interviews with drummers and two of them had a really bad time in the studio with the click track how did you how oh, did you... i hate it i hate it has to be has to be very loud mainly because I'm, I'm i'm completely deaf but um uh yeah it has to be a certain it has to be a certain click um to be able to, to you know just a I can't be just like that. I, I prefer something that sounds more like maybe a snare drum sound, right. you know, so a crack of a something like that. So, so it's a bit more distinctive. Um, but yeah, yeah, that that can be a that can be an issue. Yeah. Did but, you find that kind of quite a difficult jump to make from your younger teen period to sort of like to the next stage where you're in the studio and you know the the history of you know bands is is quite sometimes kind of ruthless isn't it where suddenly a member of a band gets sidelined and the drummer is such an important member isn't it more than anybody else it's like the goalkeeper if you make one mistake as a goalkeeper you you know you're you're remember. remembered for that kind remember. of like whereas yeah, a bad pass yeah. or bad tackle or, or bad cross no one cares but yeah, yeah, uh, you yeah. know peter shielton against poland you know we'll never forget that yeah exactly yeah <laughs> so do you feel a like Come on, guys. You know I'm the drum. You know, but the drummer is so important. Everyone says, "God, you've got to have the drummer." Do you? Did you have to change, or did you have to sort of have lessons, or did you? You know, how did you cope with? You know, I, I, you just had to adapt to it because, yeah, yeah, you're right. In the early days, you go in and you'll just play together, and you know, you'll you'll record the guitar, the bass, and the drums at the same time, playing live, and then you might overdub the lead and the vocals and and, and whatever else. But yeah, so then going in and doing it bit by bit. Um, I think is is difficult because when you're playing, like especially with, with a drummer and a bass player, especially with a double bass, there's there's so much in, in interweaving with the bass and the bass drum and the drum patterns. Yes. Um, so so you 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 need you need to get that right, and that's difficult to do if you're not both playing at the same time. So what we do sometimes, and what we did when when we recorded some of these songs, especially the ones in Portugal, Phil Phil would be playing at the same time, so we'd play our bit. Boss would play a guide, a guide guitar, but we just record the drums, and then Phil would redo his bit. But you get the feel, you know, yeah. you get that, you get that feel because you're both playing together. So uh, yeah, but the, yeah, the click track thing is is annoying. But if you get, I find I just have to have it right, just how I like it, and then then it's okay to play it. For you. Yes, because I went to see that um, an exhibition in mm-hmm. Manchester, you know, and it was Factory Records, and it was you know Joy Division, and I know with the band they were really disappointed when they heard that first album, you know Martin Hannett's kind of production, and then it's like, well, no, it's quite good, I'd stick with it. But do you do you ever sort of find that kind of a bit surprised when you sort of record it and then you hear it back eventually and think, hmm, not quite sure about that, or is it kind of always a happy surprise? Um- yeah, but very often it, it is, uh, or more more often than not, it is uh, happy surprise. You think, yeah, actually that sounds great. We did a great job. There, there was one of the tracks we we did in Portugal that we redid the drum part on in London for for the EP, and 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 that was exactly like that. We listened to it back a few times after, after you know um, we'd recorded it, and um, over the next sort of six or eight months. Oh well, that could be better. We could do that better, better sound, better, better playing. And uh, and I said, I'm not happy with it, so let's redo it. So we redid it, and uh, and it was just um, it was. I, mean, I I used my own drums, which made a difference to me because I was more comfortable with it. Uh, and it was it was a lot of Tom work in it, uh, and it it sounded a million times million times better. Do you find have you found it's it better you get a better recording if you've been playing songs those songs live before you then put them in the studio so you kind of work out a bit you know you can tweak yeah. them and you see yeah. how the reaction from the audience because I know in the good old days especially in the sixties I suppose bands used to play all the time didn't they and the Beatles <laughs> at Hamburg you know you you know they just had to sort of. Rec- test their you know road test their material live before they were in the studio so obviously they could tweak them and I know 
you know, bands like Twisted Sister, who I never liked, but they they were 10 years, you know, on the road before they, you know, managed to get a record deal. But they they sort of crafted it so they kind of knew what would work and what wouldn't work because they'd seen the reaction yeah. from the audience. I just wondered if you often, because I remember one band, they did the album, they weren't at all pleased with it, they hated the producer. They they toured it and they thought, God, if we could record the album now, it'd be so much better. But... So much better. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've, I've made other other records. Like, I think we have ever felt that with the Polecat stuff. I think we've always been been happy with it. There's, there's songs that we might have recorded, and then over the years of playing them, we've we've tweaked them a bit, so mm-hmm. they're they're better. And yeah, maybe if you could say you could go back and if you if you could record it again. But for the most, yeah, for the most part, I think I'm personally happy with with uh, with it. There was one. There's the the single with the band the the Poor Boys I mentioned earlier. Um, listening to it now and a lot of people it was it's sort of become a bit of a collector's ep and you know um but yeah i listen to it now and i think oh god you know if i could record that again now you know it would be so sound would be better the playing would be better it, it would just be you know the songs were great but if you did it now 40 years later it could be really, that'd be really great. Yes. So you've got the tour and then the album, hopefully at the end of this year or is it early next year? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the, the plan is for a four track EP. What, what, what we, what we want to do is um, two or three four track EPs and then add another four songs and release it as an album. Yes. Something like that. So it'll be 12, 12 tracks. Something that's, that's the kind of the idea at the minute. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview, apart from the last little bit. But um, on this occasion, you probably don't need to hear that. A massive thank you, as always, to John Buck, drummer with the Polecats, who, as he said, is um, active. They're recording, they're touring. It's all good stuff. Anyway, huge thank you for that. This has been The C86 Show. I'm David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. True. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>